For decades after his 1987 conviction, Timothy Foster's case ran into dead end after dead end. Both the original trial court and the Georgia Supreme Court rejected Foster's Batson claim. Later, a state habeas court did the same. Then in 2006, Foster's lawyers stumbled across the smoking gun that changed everything. They accessed copies of the original prosecutor's file through the Georgia Open Records Act. The file included the prosecutor's jury selection notes, evidence of race-based discrimination. That new evidence caught the attention of the nation's highest court, raising Foster's case to the national stage. I'm your host, Grace Snell, and this is episode three of Georgia v. Foster. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Georgia v. Foster, a podcast investigating the struggle for justice when the stakes are highest, the death penalty. Our legal system stands on the idea that justice should be blind. But is it really? Who lives? Who dies? Who decides? On this show, we're unpacking the case of Timothy Tyrone Foster, a black man sentenced to death for murder by an all-white jury in 1987. You'll hear argument first this morning in case 1483-49, Foster versus Chapman. Mr. Bright. It's November 2nd, 2015. Attorney Stephen Bright takes the stand in the U.S. Supreme Court. He's arguing on behalf of Timothy Tyrone Foster. Bright doesn't mince words. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the prosecutors in this case came to court on the morning of jury selection determined to strike all the black prospective jurors. It's a bold claim, but Bright had the evidence to back it up. The evidence in the prosecutor's file cast serious doubt on the motives of attorneys Steve Lanier and Doug Pullen. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts summarizing the evidence. Most cases of this sort involve trial transcripts, records, and lower court opinions. In this case, however, we have a copy of the file used by the prosecution during jury selection. That file contains the following documents. First, lists containing the names of each prospective juror. The names of the black prospective jurors are highlighted in bright green with the notation that green highlighting, quote, represents blacks, end quote. Second, a list titled Definite Nose. That list contains six names, including the names of each black prospective juror. Third, a typed document stating that, quote, if it comes down to having to pick one of the black jurors, end quote, one particular one might be acceptable. Fourth, handwritten notes identifying three black prospective jurors as B number one, B number two, and B number three. Fifth, Questionnaires filled out by several black prospective jurors. On each, the prospective juror's race is circled. And sixth, a handwritten document containing the following note, quote, no, no black church, end quote, referring to the church to which one of the black prospective jurors belonged. The word black is underlined. Bright's job was to prove from this evidence that Foster deserved a new trial. To do this, he'd have to overcome res judicata, a legal principle requiring significant new evidence to overturn the decision of a competent court. Bright argued the evidence couldn't be clearer in Foster's case. Step by step, Bright poked holes in the prosecutor's reasoning for striking black jurors. Bright argued the prosecutor's justifications were inconsistent, incredible, and unequally applied among black and white jurors. He highlighted glaring inconsistencies between prosecutorial testimony and the prosecutor's own notes. Take the strike against Eddie Hood, for example. Hood was identified as B number one, on the prosecutor's list. The prosecutors originally told the trial court their main concern was that Hood had a son about the same age as Foster. Later, they said Hood's Church of Christ membership was the issue. 
Prosecutors said that Church of Christ members were usually reluctant to vote for the death penalty. However, the prosecutors accepted a white juror with three teenage sons, and Hood stated four different times he had no qualms voting for the death penalty. The prosecutors also noted that the Church of Christ doesn't take a stand on the death penalty and that the issue is left as a matter of conscience. The prosecutors' notes more than suggest race as the real reason Lanier and Pullen struck Hood from the jury. The misrepresentations in the case of Marilyn Garrett were equally blatant. On the morning of the jury striking, the court dismissed one of the five eligible black jurors for cause. Shirley Powell had discovered she had a close friend related to Foster. Prosecutors claimed they originally planned to strike Powell and let Garrett serve on the jury. Powell's dismissal created an extra strike prosecutors could spend eliminating someone else. However, prosecutors also needed to justify their strike against Garrett. So they presented 11 different reasons why Garrett wouldn't make a good juror. Wright argued prosecutors couldn't have their cake and eat it too. No, but all the prosecutor talked about were the color highlighted notes. Each prosecutor filed an affidavit, which are in the, in, in the joint appendix at uh, 168. Uh, and all they said was, we didn't highlight it in green, and we didn't tell anybody else to highlight it in green. Uh, and then Mr. Lanier says, and I don't have anything else to say beyond what I said at the Batson hearing and the motion for new trial. Mr. Pullen said, the only other thing he said is, I didn't use those green highlighted lists in choosing the jury. But of course, that's just the first few pages. What, what's damning about this is not so much that, but the definite no's list, uh, the misrepresentation to the trial court that Ms. Garrett, that they wanted Ms. Garrett. That's what they told the trial court, and the trial court uh, relied upon that. Uh, in denying the Batson motion, that this showed their openness to having. Miss Garrett was on the definite no list. She was on each of the strike lists. Miss Garrett was never in the running to be on this jury. At the same time, and they're still arguing this both ways, that they both wanted her and didn't want her, they give 11 reasons for why Miss Garrett would not be a good juror, that she's impudent and she doesn't respect the court. If you believe all the things they said about her, they would never want her as a juror. Bright argued the, quote, laundry list of reasons prosecutors gave to justify their strikes indicated they were simply making things up. Here's Bright's response to a question from Justice Kennedy. If the prosecutor argues a laundry list of reasons for striking the black juror, and some of those are reasonable and some of them are implausible, how should the court approach the Batson analysis? I think the court looks at which reasons are pretextual. I think the fact that there is a laundry list suggests in and of itself that the court should scrutinize the reasons very carefully, should be suspect of the reasons, because otherwise what the court is going to do is just simply encourage prosecutors or any party in a case, since Batson applies to everyone, uh, is going to encourage a party to just give as many reasons as possible and hope that one will be acceptable. Beth A. Burton, Deputy Attorney General of Atlanta, presented the prosecutor's side of the story. She argued that the laundry list actually boosted prosecutors' credibility. Burton contended Lanier and Pullen were simply hedging their bets since the Batson ruling was so new. And again, I don't think there's, I don't think there's clear error here on these notes of racial discrimination. Their strikes are sound. As to Mr. Hood, you would not want Mr. Hood on the jury regardless of his race, based on his reasons. The reason that he gives a laundry list like I said, may well have been because we were in 1987 and you're just putting out everything you can because you're not exactly sure what you're supposed to do. Prosecutors also issued affidavits claiming they didn't make any of the highlighted marks on the jury veneer list. 
Lanier's affidavit included the following statement, quote, it was common practice in the office to highlight in yellow those jurors who had prior case experience. I did not instruct anyone to make the green highlighted marks. I reaffirm my testimony made during the motion for a new trial hearing as to how I used my peremptory jury strikes and the basis and reasons for those strikes. End of quote. Neither Lanier nor Pullen provided an explanation for where the notes came from, if not from one or both of them. The only other possible author for the notes was Clayton Lundy, an investigator who helped with Foster's jury selection. That put Burton in a tricky position when Justice Ginsburg asked her the obvious question. Who is responsible oh. for the definite no list? Uh, the definite no list, nobody, the only person that was asked about that was Mr. Lundy, who was deposed and said he could not identify who wrote that list. Um, so we don't. There are only three possible we, choices. This says definite no. The U.S. Supreme Court didn't buy that answer. The justices handed down their final decision on May 23, 2016. Here are some excerpts from the opinion delivered by Chief Justice John Roberts. I have the opinion of the court in case 148349, Foster v. Chapman. Now, in light of the documents in the file and our independent examination of the record, we conclude that the prosecution's purportedly race-neutral reasons for striking at least two of the black prospective jurors, Marilyn Garrett and Eddie Hood, were pretextual and that the strikes were instead based on at least, in at least substantial part, on racial discrimination. The order of the Georgia Supreme Court is accordingly reversed and the case is remanded for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. TV stations buzzed with the news. Today, the Supreme Court, seven to one, with Chief Justice Roberts writing, has ruled in his favor. This may not have a broad implication because it's very rare, obviously, to get smoking gun documents like his lawyers did. The Supreme Court today overturned the murder conviction and death sentence of a black man in Georgia. In a seven to one decision, the court ruled prosecutors had unconstitutionally excluded Afri African Americans from the all white jury. The sole dissenter was the only black justice, Clarence Thomas. The decision paves the way for a new trial for Timothy Foster, who was convicted of the brutal rape and murder of an elderly school teacher and sentenced to death. The justices had signaled at oral arguments they were troubled by the case. Justice Elena Kagan said the prosecutor's conduct was as clear a violation as a court is ever going to see, thanks to the discovery of the prosecutor's notes. Some framed it as a win for death penalty advocates. But Jan Crawford, chief legal correspondent for CBS, pointed out that justices didn't address broader issues at play in the case. Now, some anti-death penalty groups say that race discrimination in jury selection may be less obvious today, but it still persists. But Nora, this case focused solely on Foster's trial 30 years ago. It did not address those bigger concerns. After three decades on death row, Foster was headed back to Floyd County. On February 17, 2017, Foster's attorneys submitted a motion requesting his transfer to the Floyd County Jail. Floyd County Judge William Sparks granted the motion the following month. A lot had changed in the Georgia court system since Foster's 1987 trial. One major change was the creation of a statewide public defense system in 2003. The Capital Defense Branch, Georgia Capital Defender, provides expert representation to death penalty defendants. This office has dramatically reduced the number of death penalty verdicts in Georgia. Attorney Jerry Word was the director of the Capital Defender Office when the Foster decision came out. Word agreed to a request from Stephen Bright to tackle the Foster case. I think the, the fact that 
this was such a blatant violation of of the Batson rights and and a blatant use of discriminatory strikes, basically. And the fact that they've been able to actually prove it with hard evidence was so rare. And so just kind of wanted to see what we could do with it. Words said he believes Foster is one of many defendants discriminated against in the U.S. court system. Well, I think it's extremely common that it happens, and it's but it's hard to prove. The unique thing of this was that it was so blatant that an appellate court said, this can't stand. Um, so that, that was kind of what was unique about it, I think. So the default is um, they strike the jurors of color uh, and get away with it. And this was unique in the sense that they didn't get away with it. Bright knew Foster would once again need all the help he could get. Defending Foster in the 80s was hard enough. Now the trail had lain cold for nearly 30 years. Some witnesses, including the lead investigator, were dead. Steve Lanier had long since concluded his three terms as DA and moved on from the office. John Bailey, editor of the Rome News Tribune in Floyd County, called Lanier in 2016 for his reaction to the court's decision. Lanier told Bailey he was disappointed for the sake of the victim's family. They would have to endure the grief of another trial. Bailey says listening to Lanier talk gave him a glimpse into why he did what he did. And he was a good attorney, right? And he knew what he was doing, and he had a really big personality. And he, you know, I could see him having that argument saying, you know, damn it, this is how I'm going to win it. This is what I'm going to do. After dealing with him, you could see that. You know, he called back and he was like, you know, this is disappointing. And, you know, the family, this is terrible with the family and stuff like that. Even to that point, you know, I asked him again about it. And he was just like, you know, I'm not a racist. I didn't do that. And I'm almost inclined to believe his thought process behind that, that that wouldn't be you know, a racist act, that he didn't do this on terms of race, he did this on terms of getting that conviction and doing what's right for the victim, et cetera, et cetera. Concern for the victim's family is also a hallmark of current Floyd County District Attorney Lee Patterson. Patterson had just graduated from Barry College in Rome at the time of Foster's crime in 1986. Patterson attended law school at the University of Georgia and started as an intern in the Floyd County DA's office during Steve Lanier's tenure. Patterson worked her way up the system from there, she started as assistant DA in 1990 and held this position for 12 years. Then Patterson won the district attorney seat for the first time in 2003. Patterson was also the DA responsible for prosecuting Foster a second time. Foster's defense team wanted to keep the case from going to trial because a trial came with the possibility of another death verdict. Their aim was to settle the case out of court. That wasn't going to be easy. Patterson has a reputation for being very tough on crime. Patterson declined repeated interview requests, so you won't hear from her directly on this podcast. But she sat for an interview with the Coosa Valley News in 2013. Here are Patterson's words about her job. Well, I love her. I'm in Floyd County. I came here as a student at Barry, and I loved it when I was here as a student and loved it even more when I came back and I, I've made it my home. I think dealing with the families of murder victims and dealing with child victims of sexual assault, those are two of the the hardest kind of cases that we handle because a murder case is just, you know, you're having to help that family understand and work their way through the system and they just know that their loved one's gone and usually it's in a violent, brutal manner and they're just kind of, they're just very hard to deal with uh, emotionally. And the most rewarding part? Putting bad guys in jail so they can't ever hurt anybody again. So it's not really surprising that Patterson submitted a notice of intent on December 29th, 2017 to seek the death penalty. Timothy Foster would once again be fighting for his life in Floyd County. That and more next time on Georgia v. Foster.
Georgia V. Foster is reported and hosted by Grace Snow. This episode is produced by Anna Rich. Music courtesy of pixabay.com. For more episodes, head to bikeinfusion.com or find us on Spotify. Thanks for listening.